Got it turned on? Now it's on. Yep. Huh? No, I think I'm okay. So we have the weekly Sabbath coming up tomorrow. <laughs> but this is today, the end of the feast. Now, it's been suggested, and I thought it was a good idea, that we have a group photo. Uh, we used to do that when we had 150, 120 people here, 70, whatever it would have been, depending on the year. And then we kind of, for some reason, didn't remember or quit doing it, but uh, we're all so pretty that I think it would be a good idea for us to have a picture of, this, of all this. So we'll do that right after services, maybe not right after, some need to go to the back of the hall right away, but uh, before potluck, once it's set up, we could come out uh, here in front of the hall and get a picture in front of the newly trimmed trees. <laughs> so let's do that this year. Somebody showed me a picture just recently of a photo taken after a feast some time back, and it reminded me that, hey, you know, we quit doing that, and then it went on through my mind, and somebody brought it up today, so I think it's a good idea. Once in a while, somebody says, I want to go back and look at one of those photos and see if so-and-so was there. You know, it's, it can be a matter of interest at times when you last saw someone. So let's do that before potluck. We won't let you eat first, or we might forget it and go do something else, but do we want to eat anymore anyway? That's, I guess that's another question. <laughs> I'm sure some of you don't want to cook anymore. Uh, we've been doing an awful lot of preparing of food through this time, and uh, I want you to know it's very much appreciated that that has been done. I've been kind of off my feet and haven't been enjoying it as much as normal, which is probably a good thing. But uh, a lot of work goes into it, and I think we all do appreciate it. But now before the sermon, we have special music since it's the last great day. It's entitled, Blow the Trumpet in Zion by the Combined church choir, choir, and she says, with dancing and the trumpeting. Uh, that's interesting. Go ahead and be coming up if you want. But, uh, you know, the Bible frequently, through the Psalms and other places, talks about singing and dancing before the eternal. And I don't know what dancing before the eternal means, really. Uh, what kind of dancing? What do they mean by that? David just danced when the Ark of the Covenant was coming back because he was joyful and there was music and so on. So we're trying to get a handle on what kind of dancing might be desired. So we have the kids and some... It'll do a little dancing here, and I appreciate that effort uh, to go into it, and uh, it's something God says do. Now, some 
have said, well, let's do the dances that the Jews do. Well, maybe that's one thing, but the Jews don't do much right, so I don't know that their dancing is particularly correct. But it's something we need to be working toward, and I appreciate that Gloria's kind of pushing people to kind of move around a little and sort of dance. We don't have any particular dance like a square dance, but uh, move around a bit, in other words, uh, is a good idea. And maybe over time we'll learn what God meant by singing dance before me, because it is in there. So this is entitled, Blow the Trumpet in Zion. Thank you. 
Well, thank you for that. Both cute and inspiring at the same time. Why have we been here all this time? Sitting for eight days now going on or in? What's this all been about and why? I want to go there today instead of back to Deuteronomy. We can work on that uh, at a later time. But meat in due season kind of requires in a way that we go over the meaning of this time and what it's been here for and why we still keep it. Uh, because it is a strange thing to most people. They don't know what it is or what it's all about or don't see any purpose in it. But when you have something from the Old Testament as prominent as the Holy Days, there has to be a meaning for it. And no, excuse me, the latter days. Uh, there's got to be a tie t together because God's Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what He's trying to get across in the Old Testament is only a small part of what the New Testament is about. Now, we could go through quite a few scriptures in the New Testament that show that they were keeping the various holy days. Uh, Paul mentions going to be in a certain place by the fast, atonement. Feast of Trumpets is mentioned several times, Thessalonians, Corinthians, and the book of Revelation. Of course, the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, which they were keeping. So people say, well, that's all Old Testament stuff. Well, it is Old Testament stuff, but it's also New Testament stuff, because it's, they were still doing it in the New Testament. And we even find that Christ himself was keeping it. We'll probably go to a scripture today which shows he was keeping the feast. Uh, of tabernacles and the last great day in the New Testament. So, if nothing else, if you want to argue about whether something's still in effect or done away and you use this obscure scripture or that one, as they do uh, Galatians and a few other Romans, to try to prove the law is done away, uh, you can go to examples where Christ kept the law he instructed the disciples to become apostles to keep the law if they wanted to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that's all New Testament stuff, and it's after the Sermon on the Mount where he said, I fulfill the law. So there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament that the law is to be kept and that all these holy days are to be kept. But why? What do they mean to you and me today? And that is the key for us to understand. Now, I didn't really cover this in the Feast of Tabernacles per se, because it ended yesterday. Uh, but here we are in the last great day, which is a part of the feast. So let's look at some things. Go back to Leviticus 23, where we often begin, but I think it's a good place. Uh, we've read about the other holy days leading up to this one. This is the last one of the year. Uh, in verse 33 of Leviticus 23, it says, 
The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Eternal. So here we're told, keep it for seven days, Feast of Tabernacles. On the first day shall be a commanded assembly. You shall do no servile work therein. Preparation of food is okay on a holy day, but not regular work. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Eternal. On the eighth day shall be a commanded assembly, that's today, unto you. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Eternal. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall do no servile work therein. So, seven and then an eighth. These are the feasts of the Eternal, including all of them now, which you shall proclaim to be holy meetings, to offer an offering made by fire to the Eternal, a burnt offering and a meal offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. So you have Passover, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, now Feast of Tabernacles, and they made uh, a burnt offering and various offerings on each one of those to God on its day. Of course, he tells us when we come to the feast, not to appear empty before the Eternal, but to bring an offering, not just a lamb or a goat or a, a bird offering, but to bring to him an offering on the holy days. Beside the Sabbaths of the Eternal, and beside your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings, which you give to the Eternal. So he kind of lays out there our financial responsibilities, apart from just a burnt offering, if you will. Uh, an offering that dies in the Old Testament uh, no longer is kept, because Christ uh, embodied all those sacrifices that died. The other offerings are still in effect, but he fulfilled the others. We don't need to kill a lamb or a goat or a dove or anything because he became the sacrifice for sin, all kinds of sins. And he uh, became those things when he was killed, an offering for all the sins of man forevermore, and in the past as well, and that's what today is about, is the sins of people who've lived in the past that also need forgiven, not just ours and not just those in the day that he died, but all mankind from Adam and Eve through uh, the great white throne judgment. So he is the offering for sin. Now, 39, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, so this is in the fall, you shall keep a feast to the eternal seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. So he makes a difference, difference in, a differential between uh, the regular Feast of Tabernacles and a day that was added to it 
for a different symbolic purpose. He says it's seven days, and then he adds or tacks on an eighth day. And when you understand the plan of God of salvation for mankind, there is a category of people that has not been covered that the eighth day covers. But it's separate from the seven, in addition to. And you shall take you, on the first day, the boughs of goodly trees. They can be palm or thick trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the eternal your God seven days. And you shall keep it a feast unto the eternal seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And this is, of course, the seventh month of the heavenly calendar that God put in the skies. And we started this on the 15th. Now, he does say, You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Eternal, your God. And Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Eternal. Now, what does booths mean? He suggests here uh, making a place to dwell under trees. Uh, but... It is not limited to that. The word here is sukkah, which means, in Hebrew, which means temporary dwellings. And when he did bring them out of Egypt, which he does refer to here, they did not dwell under trees. There weren't any around in the wilderness that he led them through. They lived in tents. And many places refers, get to your tents, O Israel. Uh, so they were living in tents. Uh, which are temporary dwellings. Uh, a booth made of trees would be a temporary dwelling. So, that's all it means is temporary dwelling. And around Jerusalem, uh, there were a lot of trees, and people could do that so long as the trees lasted. But uh, you don't want to strip every tree within three miles bare in order to make a temporary booth a a tent's okay, and when you move out of your home into somebody else's and sleep in a different bed than you normally do, I think that can fulfill it as well. It's a temporary dwelling. You leave where you normally sleep and live and live in a temporary place. So everything's strange to you, and that's the point. Uh, we are ambassadors for Christ, walking this earth not to be involved in the politics of this world, but to be ambassadors for Christ. And when you have a, an ambassador representing, say, the U.S., he goes to a different country, lives in a different spot to represent the U.S. government. And ambassadors do this all over the world from all countries. <clears throat> They're not there as a citizen. They're not there to run that country. They're simply there as a representative of the country they come from. And he says, our, we are to be here in this world, but our kingdom 
is not of this world. So we are here merely as guests of the government of wherever we live. Uh, we're not to be involved in running it. We're to stay out of politics uh, and simply be here as a representative of God. That's primary reason we don't vote, because that's taking part in a government that you're not part of. My kingdom is not of this world, or my servants would fight, and since it's not of this world, my servants don't fight. And there's the basis for being a conscientious objector, and I think they are probably going to institute a draft again, uh, is because we're not of this kingdom. We're only a guest here. Now, you feel like you belong in the U.S. and you have a citizenship here, but our citizenship, tr citizenship truly is in heaven. And we're in that sense kind of dual citizen, but the, the heavenly citizenship is much higher than the human, physical, national citizenship. Much higher, much more important. So we are not here to be involved in any politics other than the politics from the Father and the Son, as indicated here, to be an example to the other nations of the world. We're not here to fight their battles. We're not here to elect their officials. We're here to represent the kingdom of God and dwell according to the way Christ dwelt as the official ambassador from God the Father here on the earth. So that's why we just don't get involved. I have never in my life voted and don't ever intend to. Because I vote for Christ. That's the one I vote for. And he's the only answer. People say, boy, there's just no answer. It doesn't matter who you, who you vote for, there's no answer. Well, that is correct. So why bother? The only one who has any answers will be coming soon. And he has all the answers. So that's where my vote goes. Thy kingdom come, and your will be done. Not anybody who dwells in Washington or Russia or China or anywhere else. Only when he is here will there be peace. And the Feast of Tabernacles represents that peace. So we are here as ambassadors. We are observing that by being in temporary dwellings. And we won't have a permanent dwelling place in that sense until Christ returns. Even the gathering of the remnant of the church to preach the gospel around the world, which is soon forthcoming, is still, in that sense, temporary. Uh, if we dwell in Zion, we'll probably dwell in some of the motels and hotels and houses that are around. But that'll be temporary until... The millennium starts, and then it'll all change because we'll all be part of the New Jerusalem. It'll be headquartered in the same area as Zion, but it's a new Jerusalem. And we have a new home in that one that comes down from heaven. And that's what we're waiting for. And from there, we will be with Christ to rule the world.
144,000 the bride. So this day, or not this day, but the Feast of Tabernacles represents a thousand year period of peace. God gave the number six to man. He has reserved the number seven to himself. So he said, six days shall you labor and do all your work. And Numbers 14.34 says that a day is as a thousand years. So uh, a day in prophecy can represent a thousand years and does quite frequently. So each day of the week represents a thousand years of man's existence since Adam and Eve. And when 6,000 years are finished, and we're very close to that, he's going to come back, put down all the governments of men. I don't care who voted for them, they're all going down. And he will set up his kingdom on the earth, and there will be no sin, no theft, no murder, no adultery, no Sabbath-breaking, no other gods other than the true God. Only He is to be worshipped, and they will not make war anymore. They'll turn their swords, their spears into plowshares and pruning hooks. People seem to have a, a great deal of fantasy across the world and in this nation about war and glorify war. Well, there's been war ever since when? Since Satan rebelled against God and messed things up in the universe and since Cain slew Abel and broke the peace. And we've had mankind killing mankind ever since. And to have been in the war, oh my, thank you for protecting us. Thank you for defending us and our nation. And then we have Veterans of Foreign Wars uh, clubs where people go and tell their war stories over and over and over again. Same stories, and you hope you have different ears but usually it's the same bunch of old guys with one arm and one leg or whatever who are there to tell their war stories to each other. Uh, that's all across the country, veterans of foreign wars. So in this world, peace is not glorified. How many people do you sit around, have sitting around saying, oh, I just love peace. Now they'll all say they want peace, but they don't sit around telling you all about the ways to have peace and how peace, how there was peace in a country for a year once. <laughs> uh, they don't talk about that. They talk about all the wars and all the ins and outs of all the wars, American wars. And they glorify uh, bows and arrows and spears and swords and guns and cannons and aircraft carriers and airplanes that bomb the smithereens out of a place. And they glorify that, and, and war is supposed to be something that we're proud of. What's to be proud of slaughtering thousands and thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of people? Oh, that's really something to talk about. 
Why? It signifies death and destruction and lack of peace. And God's whole different direction is peace and turning war weapons into plowshares, that's Micah 4, and pruning hooks. Up until that time that the millennium begins, men have been turning pruning hooks and plowshares into weapons and glorifying commanders and leaders of armies and so on throughout. And then suddenly it's going to change and their war weapons are going to be destroyed. And they're going to go through the land, Ezekiel says, destroying all those war things and burying dead people for months. So why do we want to sit around and talk about the wonderful weapons of war? You know, you can go to a museum in Cody, Wyoming, about Buffalo Bill and all that stuff. And it's mostly about weapons, a lot of pistols and revolvers and so on in there, and how they evolved and where they came from. And people go there to glorify that stuff. No, it's all going to be melted down and forgotten. Those weapons that they display in that little museum are all about killing people. They don't talk very much about hunting for elk, maybe buffalo that day. But it's mostly those weapons were all designed to kill people. Colt even called their forty-five the peacemaker. We use the gun to kill somebody so that it'll be more peaceful without them. That's kind of upside down, backward, and weird is what that is. Now, the whole point is to get past the 6,000 years of man's hate and warfare and killing each other and get to a time of peace under Christ where, did I say the other day, we, need, we won't need locksmiths? Won't need car uh, locks, won't need locks on house doors, because all that stealing is going to stop. Well, you can also put a lot of gun manufacturers in that same category. You don't need an AR-15 to go shoot a deer. Besides that, in the millennium, it'd be tame enough, you can go up and talk to him a little bit and pat his shoulder and then cut his throat. But you won't need a gun to do it. That stuff's all going away. So why do we make a big deal out of knives and guns and things that are made to kill people? Won't be any fighter airplanes, won't be any bombers. It'll all be gone. So if you have an amazing understanding of history, of planes made to kill people, Ain't nobody going to want to hear about it. It's all in the past. It's all done. It's forgotten. Now we're talking about he who will bring peace. Now we can talk about the peacemaker, but it's not a gun. It's Jesus Christ himself who brings peace. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. It's about the 7,000 years, which will be a Sabbath for the whole world. A time to rest from the things of man. 
We've done our thing for 6,000 years. Now it's time to do things God's way for a Sabbath, a millennium, a day being the same as a thousand years. That's where we can read of Isaiah 11 and 35 and the different places about all the animals that used to kill each other and eat each other being tame. Kids playing on the snake hole. The lion and the lamb laying down together. The lion eating straw like an ox. He'll change their teeth. It's hard for a lion to eat grass and survive. Now, once in a while, if your cat gets a little sick or your dog, uh, they'll eat a little grass. But they couldn't sustain themselves very long on what they can kind of get through their teeth a little bit and finally swallow. No, it'll be a time of utter peace. No war, no animals killing each other. We could go back and read all of those chapters. Uh, but I'm not going to for the sake of time today. It'd take more time to go through all that. But the 7,000 years, which is almost upon us, is all about peace and doing things the right way and the godly way and not man's way, which we've seen and had our bellies full of, I hope, by now. And we don't glorify what man has done for 6,000 years, but we glorify what God is going to do for a thousand years. We just have to get our focus on then instead of now, because this world is going away. And the wonderful world tomorrow is coming into style. So let's get geared up to be in style, and that's the way Christ is going to do things, not the way General What's-His-Name did, or Napoleon, or... Hitler, Mussolini, or whoever. That will be nothing in all of our revered generals of the United States. will be nothing. The generals from the Civil War, forgotten from World War I and World War II, and all of the wonders that we give to General Patton, for instance. Nobody shouldn't want to hear those stories. They aren't important. They're gone. Forget it. It's hard, I think, for us to transition from looking at what man has done and reviewing what man has done instead of glorifying weapons of war and some soldiers. If you're going to talk about them at all, you could say that man killed this many people and that man killed this many people and we don't need this. Instead, we glorify them. MacArthur is one who's held in high esteem. And he says, I'm coming back. Thank God he didn't come back. Maybe we ought to look at it that way instead of, oh, he could have saved us here and saved us there if he had come back. But he got fired instead. Uh, thankfully. We don't need men of war. We don't need ships and planes of war. Forget it. The new world is coming on. Not the new world that is being introduced by the warmongers today. How can we glorify them? They're going to kill 90% of the people on the earth with various means like Lahaina 
and others that you're going to see soon, and with diseases like COVID. It's going to get worse, not better, until God says over 90% of the people on earth are going to die, and he's going to turn Satan and these elitist people, they think, loose on us. So you and I are not here to think about that, to glorify that. Why is it we glorify the killers of the past, and then we abhor these that are about to kill more people than anybody ever has in the past? We need to shut all of that down. It's just a matter of focus on what shall be that is good. So we're to dwell in booths as ambassadors, not be here fighting the battles of this world, and we're not to fight, nor to glorify fighting. I've never really zeroed in that before, but uh, you often hear people talking. In fact, it kind of got around the campfire the other night that uh, which kind of sword is the most wonderful thing to stick through somebody and spill all their blood on the ground and kill them. And I'm sitting there listening to this, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. Those things are for a wrong purpose. They're for a wrong use. Uh, and I've heard that kind of talk and I've been involved in it over my lifetime and other people's lifetimes and so on. And it just hit me all of a sudden, that's not really a good topic of conversation here at the Feast of Tabernacles. The pictures, absolute peace on earth, and here we're talking about ways to kill people, and which is the best and most efficient method to kill people. Uh, yeah, just it's, it's. I'm not condemning anybody that was talking about that. It's just it just suddenly struck me as I was listening. Wait a minute, why do we need this kind of talk? And I've not heard anybody comment on it in the past either, in decades in the church. But it's just not fitting for the Feast of Tabernacles, or for that matter, any time, to glorify the weapons of war and killing and all that has gone on. We're here to represent peace. Christ had the symbol of the dove, not of war machinery, to bring peace. And that's what this really is all about. <clears throat> Now, a lot of people are going to die until Christ causes the weapons of war to be turned into plowshares and pruning hooks. So, can we talk about the right kind of plowshare, maybe? What kind of plow turns the earth and does a good job of helping plant and helping other farm machinery, uh, helping harvest and make good food for people? So they can eat good food instead of this chemical junk that half people are eating today, almost straight across the board. Maybe we ought to be talking about farm implements and the best kind for the millennium. It's a lot more honorable thing to discuss rather than war things. But he says very clearly, you're going to all go away and be turned into farm equipment. Let's feed people instead of kill, make them, help them live instead of killing them. There's quite a bit of difference there. And I 
since I zeroed in on it, it you know, here it comes out, but uh, we need to think about such things. What is of man and what is of God? And then make a separation in what we think and talk about and read about. Are you better off reading Isaiah 55, 51, 11, 35, or about George Patton, for instance? <laughs> you know, which, which will do you the most good? Which is more godly? But, you know, this isn't as exciting as the smell of gunpowder and people dying and screaming in agony as their limbs are torn off. We've got to glorify that. Well, it's just, just opposite of the way it ought to be. So that's one we can work on uh, now, that, now that it's explained about the 6,000 years of man's rule and the horror that that's brought in a thousand years of Christ rule, which will bring absolute peace around the world. That's the one to be concerned about and focused on, is what's in the very near future for this world, and they will not like it. You start talking like I'm talking today, down at the DFW Hall, they'd run me out of there. But which is right and which is wrong, <laughs> you know? People like war. They glorify in war. They don't like to see their kids disappear or come back missing limbs, but they'll still glorify war. My son was injured and he came back and he protected his country. What about all those scriptures we could go to and read right now where God said, you won't have to go to war. I will protect you. I will take care of you if you'll just obey me and focus on me. Doesn't need to be any war to glorify. We should glorify God and that He can bring peace on earth. And that's what we're here worshiping is God. We've had quite a bit of emphasis on that through the book of Deuteronomy as far as we've gone. And all through those sections of the Old Testament, Chronicles, Kings, Leviticus, Numbers, you know, where God talks about how I will protect you, I will drive the people out before you. In some cases, he says, you can do the fighting, but I'll be the one that scares the people away in front of you. And with Gideon, and many other places, they didn't have to fight at all. Just break their tumblers and shout. He scared all those people and jumped up and grabbed their sword and killed each other. And God can do stuff like that. And He's promised He will if we will but obey. And He has promised the remnant of the church that with this war that is coming in our nation very shortly now, that if we will obey Him, He'll take us to a place where He protects us and we don't need to go to war. And we won't have to face the Assyrian and the other enemies that come against us whose language we know not, can't understand. We'll be protected from all that if we put God first and focus on Him. He's promised us the same things He promised the people in the Old Testament. It's beautiful. 
just absolutely beautiful what he will do. So, if you're out in the world today, you're seeing a nation that is coming apart. You're seeing a nation that has sissies as men for leaders and sissies as women for leaders. And there's no one to protect this nation. In fact, they're helping destroy it as fast as they know how. So if you're sitting out here in Podunk, Kansas, who do you trust? You don't know God, so you're trusting the Pentagon? They're selling us out left and right. Who can you trust? Nobody. Who's going to deliver us? Nobody. And God has said in Jeremiah, don't even pray for this people. They won't repent. I'm going to destroy them. That's all there is to it. By the way, I got a text from my daughter Leslie last night. And she says, Dad, what's going on with this eclipse thing? Or is it just something to enjoy watching? I kind of unloaded <laughs> and told her what some of the sites even in the world are saying about it and added a few things about the 430 years and how it ended in 2017. I didn't get into great deal, but I told her not only is it important, it ought to be scaring people spitless if they really understand what's going on. But, no, their minds are on other things and this upcoming fraudulent election that's about to occur and all this kind of garbage that is not going to do them a bit of good. And a government that's destroying our food supply and our oil supply and everything else to bring us down. They're not seeing it. So I invited her to call me back after she goes to a few websites and sees what it looks like uh, call me back and we'll discuss it further <laughs> if she isn't scared to face it. Now, we have a new world coming on, but it's God's world, not Satan's world. His is only going to last three and a half years. The times of the Gentiles, 42 months, and that's it. And God is going to destroy it and throw the beast and the false prophet in a lake of fire. So, no time to glorify a new world order. A lot of people are. They're picking it up. Oh, we need a new world government so that everything can be distributed equally and everybody can prosper and all these ideas they have which are not going to come to pass. It will not bring peace. It will bring more war. In fact, the book of Daniel says that this image that is being raised will be have feet of iron in miry clay. And if the whole image that stands up has feet of iron in miry clay, it won't be long till it falls down. Because iron and clay do not stick together and form anything solid. It'll come apart. So what they're looking forward to building, and some people are catching on to and saying we need this, is going to all fall apart after 42 months of full existence. Now, the elements of it are already there to some degree, and it's gaining strength and power, 
but it hasn't really taken over yet to rule the world as it will for 42 months. Then the times of the Gentiles will be over and Christ is going to squash it all. There is a time for a sword, but only one, and that's the sword of Christ who's coming back to cut everything asunder. And it's only in that sense symbolic. Uh, he'll use other ways to actually do the death and destruction. So, <clears throat> that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. Of Christ bringing peace to this earth and the lion and the lamb lying down together, and no more wars. No need for any weapons of war. No need for armies, navies, air force. It's all going away. Won't be any of it. Period. We're the few, the proud, the marines. You'll be nobody, none of you. You won't be proud, and you won't be the marines. It's all going away. So why be proud of it now? They can't protect us. They can't save us. God has already decreed we're going down. And it's going to happen. So let's worship He who can bring peace. And let's think about peace and the way things are going to be and what instead of the way things have been and are that is totally against God. I mean, you can do this even in the small things. Sometimes when I get a goat head in my foot or a bunch of foxtails in my socks, so it might be just as well to throw them away as to try to get them out, I think these are all things that came as a result of man's disobedience. They were naked in the Garden of Eden and they didn't have anything that hurt them or stuck them. There were no thorns, there were no thistles, there were no poison insects or poison snakes or any of that stuff. It was perfectly peaceful in the Garden of Eden. And then when they got kicked out, God said, you'll work by the sweat of your brow and conditions for living will be difficult. And I believe that he either had all of those things available, maybe already created, or he allowed Satan a certain capacity to make Friendly plants, unfriendly. <laughs> and animals, unfriendly, because they changed. In the Garden of Eden, the lions had teeth to eat grass. And then, after sin, their teeth were changed. I don't know whether God did it, or whether he let Satan, who's the destroyer, do it. And I kind of lean that direction. But when I get a goat head, instead of thinking, where'd these things come from? I need to say, oh, it was because of our disobedience that God put these things on us. And if we will obey, He'll take them away. And I firmly believe He will when He starts the remnant church up. But the desert will bloom as a rose and it will be friendly again. And we won't have all these things that stick us and prick us and uh, hurt us. They'll be gone. <clears throat> Just, he has to transform it. 
as it was transformed from good to evil at the Garden of Eden, he's going to transform things again from evil to good. Now, there's still an awful lot of good on the earth. God didn't destroy it all. There's still, this earth, in spite of everything, is still a wonderful place to live and see and partake of. But it has things there as a constant nag to remind us that they're there because of what we did in not obeying God. That's why they're there. So when you get stuck, don't curse God. Curse man for having disobeyed God, or there wouldn't be any goat heads. There weren't, and again, there won't. So we can talk about and think about the things that are peaceful. It's futile to talk about the best kind of door locks. Quickset sells more than anybody else, and they're cheap. They don't last very long, and then you have other manufacturers that cost more, and they're better, like swords and guns. But they're all going away, so why do you need a catalog in your mind of all the best ones? Pretty soon, they'll all get tossed in the rubbish heap. You won't even have a lock on your door. Now, right here, we felt a somewhat sense of security, and a lot of us don't lock our houses, or we don't carry the key in from the car, we leave it in it, have. I'm getting a little more careful since we've had a little bit of trouble here, uh, but over the years, I've been pretty safe, just don't use locks, don't need them. And it's going to be that way again. Now, we keep the Feast of Tabernacles to represent peace on earth for a thousand years, really 1,100 years, because there is this last great day. So let's discuss that a little bit here. I'm going to go to uh, Revelation 20, first of all. He kind of gives an order of the resurrections here. Uh... There's a key to the bottomless pit. There will still be some locks. You're going to lock Satan down. But among men in the millennium, you won't need locks. He bound that old serpent, the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into a bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, like gluing a letter together. There's a seal there. He can't get out. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And God gave him 6,000 years to rule among men. And he is cutting things a little bit short to give Satan a little season after the millennium. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. That's 144,000. Read Revelation 14. And the first fruits consist of 144,000. That's all. 
The thieves didn't worship the beast, neither his image. They hadn't received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So, a thousand years just ahead of us, he's going to have his bride reigning with him over the earth to enforce peace. No Satan, no war, no false religion. It's all going away for a thousand years. And the only one available to worship will be Christ himself and his bride at that point. But the rest of the dead live not again till the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So he resurrects 144,000 when he returns in glory and marries them. And then they reign and rule with him for a thousand years. Revelation 5.10 says we'll reign with him uh, in the millennium a thousand years. So the resurrection comes in more than one increment. First one's only 144,000. It isn't that everybody comes up when Christ returns and he has, puts the sheep and the goats apart uh, because most of those people have not known who he is. They haven't known who God is. They've lived their life from Adam and Eve until today and they've not known God. They've not known His truth. Many of them were born and died the same day they were born, or ten days or ten years later, and most of them were in heathen countries that didn't know anything about God. Most of the people on earth today don't know anything about God. The Shintoists and the Buddhists and the, you know, on and on it goes. Even the Arabs with their... Uh, Whatever he is, can't say it, but um, all these false gods that they worship and they don't know the true God, don't know anything about him, don't know anything about this book, and God is going to give everyone a chance at salvation. From the time we're born, actually probably from the time we're conceived, we are the children of God. And he is going to treat all his children fairly. So if they were even conceived, it makes abortion wrong. Otherwise, uh, if they didn't receive the human spirit until they had the breath of life, then there's nothing wrong with abortion. Because they aren't humans yet. But God doesn't want babies killed from the womb. And they're doing that. But those are children who are being formed in His image. And they will all have a chance at salvation and to become God according to His plan. A lot of people think, well, my baby didn't draw a breath. He won't be resurrected. I think so. Uh, a lot of miscarriages have caused an awful lot of pain and frustration for an awful lot of women and families. But it's going to be rectified. God will fix it in this period of time after the thousand years are finished. Uh, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. 
So if you're in the first resurrection, that means you've been changed into God. You've been transformed into spirit. So nobody is going to be hurt that's in the first resurrection. So the first resurrection does not include people who, they might say, are lost or don't have salvation or aren't saved, as the Protestants put it. Uh, they won't be in the first resurrection. They come later. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Lots of them will still be around. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints and the beloved city. See, the new Jerusalem will be here by then. The Father and the Son will be ruling from the true Jerusalem. And all of these people will have been living in the millennium, but they will have turned from God, particularly when Satan is turned loose for a little while, and he will deceive them so quickly. That tells you how much power Satan has over the minds of men and why the minds of men are doing the things they're doing today that are totally ungodly. He will be able to influence them instantly and immediately to come against God again and try to destroy Christ and His bride and the Father and anyone who's at the New Jerusalem. They'll encompass the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. See, they were still physical. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's Satan's fate. The beast and false prophet uh, aren't still, won't still be there. Uh, it says are, but that's bad Greek. Where they were. And then he saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So, these books of the Bible will be opened. And then you have the book of life, where God writes all of those down, those names that are going to be in His kingdom. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, if they came and lived as human beings on this earth and never saw these books and never knew who God was and what His law was, how can they be judged by these books? They can't because they never had a chance to follow it. That's where Isaiah 65 comes in where it talks about human beings living for a hundred years and it's talking about the millennium there, but it may also be including the great white throne judgment where people will live maybe a hundred years. That's what it seems to indicate. And be judged by, they'll be taught these books. Then they will be judged by whether they follow them or not. Then they'll either be in the kingdom of God or cast into a lake of fire. But they have to have a fair trial. They have to have a chance to live by this, 
before being judged by it. So that's what the second resurrection is all about, and that's what the last great day of the feast is all about. John 6.44 says that in this era, you have to be called in order to be a part of God's congregation. You can't do it on your own. You have to be called out of this world by God. But if you go to John 7, you'll see that during the last great day of the feast, John 7:47. It isn't just those who have been called now, but let's read and see what he said. Uh, chapter 7, I'm still in 6 here. Verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, or the last great day we call it, uh, Jesus stood and cried, saying, let, uh, let any man thirst, or if any man thirst, I had it marked out with my own scratchings, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So the great white throne judgment, this last great day of the feast, is a time when he opens up salvation to any and everybody. If any man thirst, let him come. Up to this time, it's been, if I decide that I want to call you now, I will, but you don't have access otherwise. But here he opens it up to everyone. Because Satan is bound, and the second resurrection occurs, and everybody has a chance to learn the truth and to follow it. And those that do will be in the kingdom of God, the sheep, as opposed to the goats, who will be put on the left and go into a lake of fire. So, he is going to open up salvation based on what this day means, the last great day of the feast. Salvation opens to any and everyone who wants to seek it. The world today is deceived on purpose. God is not out there trying to save the world. If he was, he'd do it. But he is not currently trying to save the world, despite what a lot of missionaries will tell you. And if he is, he's not got enough missionaries out there by any means to get through India and China and all those countries in Africa. We send a lot of them to Africa, but not very many to those other countries that have far more population. So they haven't been witnessed to. They haven't been shown the truth. we got people who are trying to obey God in India, and they're being persecuted for it. So they can't spread any message. Not in India. Not in Bangladesh. Not in China. So they get left out? No. God is going to convert the world when Christ is here to rule the world along with His bride. So they haven't had a chance at salvation, but they're going to get one. Then they can be judged properly. But if you think Christ is trying to save the world now, He's pretty pathetic. When you understand the Scriptures, He's not trying to. 
He even tells the two witnesses in chapter 11 of Revelation that at the beginning, they are not even to go to the world. They are to teach the remnant church first. He says, uh, teach those who worship at the altar and leave the rest of the world, the Gentiles, out. And then he shows them teaching the church, those that have been called, in Zechariah 4. The golden oil coming out to the seven lamps or seven churches. So their first responsibility is not to go to the world. They are told, don't go to the world. Leave those that are outside on the outside and don't go to them. But people don't see that. They don't understand that. Then after that, it shows once you've gotten the church trained properly, then you go to the world and witness against them. So, he's not trying to save the world now. When he sets his hand to, in the millennium, in the great white throne judgment, he will get the job done. He even tells us in Romans 11 that all Israel shall be saved. Well, they're certainly not today. We've got churches on every corner and nobody knows God for what He really is. They don't know His plan. They don't know His purpose. They just go to church. They have a nice social time and they hear a few little uh, pat-me-on-the-back goodies on Sunday morning. Wrong day. And they don't have a clue. They think they're Christian, but they don't have a clue. They don't know what they don't know. And he's not trying to teach them yet. So the church, preaching the gospel around the world for a witness, Matthew twenty four fourteen, is not in effect yet. Not being done by any of these offshoots of the worldwide church of God. Herbert Armstrong did not understand his calling. His calling was, Matthew 28, go out there and uh, proselytize and gain some members. But Matthew 24:14 is a message to the two witnesses, whom he thought he was one at one time, to leave the world alone and teach the church. Then later go to the world. So, everybody's got everything upside down, and so did the church. Now it's being straightened out. And the two witnesses are going to have the remnant of the church, 10%, come to them to be taught, caught up on doctrine, caught up on attitude, caught up on all the things they need to know to be a witness to the world. Then, it will go to the world with those two doing the speaking. So, there's a lot even the church hasn't understood, still doesn't, thinking they're commissioned to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and they're not. They're seeking something they can't accomplish because God is not in it. Thankfully, we can understand if we understand the Scriptures and how they go together and what comes when. So, the feast, Picture the millennium when Christ and His bride will rule the earth in absolute peace. Then the great white throne judgment comes after that, 
after Satan has been bound and loosened a little bit, then the last great day starts, and he opens the opportunity of salvation to everybody, and this book will be read round the world, and they'll have an opportunity to be and fulfill the purpose of God on earth, and that is to increase his family with spiritual beings, spirit beings. That's what it's all about. And Paul says, all Israel shall be saved, but they're not today, as I started to say. They don't even know who God is. So how do you get saved? You don't just say, I'm I accept the Lord, I'm saved. That's not what this book says all the way through, is it? Not at all. They will have their chance then, and most will accept it. God is not a failure. Of all the billions of children He's had on this earth, most of them are going to come to salvation in their order. Paul mentioned the order of resurrections. First, second, and third. You don't want to be in the third. Second, you've got a real good chance of being in the kingdom of God. If you're in the first one, you're in. That's all there is to it. And he's called us now, and he expects us to live up to it and to be part of the bride of Christ. That's why we've been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles and... This day, uh, this day picturing an opportunity of salvation for the whole world from Adam on down. If you lived and didn't understand the truth and accept it, you will have your chance. That's what Ezekiel 37 is all about. The Valley of the Dry Bones is the second resurrection. There are people who think that's going to happen here before Christ returns. No. Uh, that's the time of a general resurrection in Ezekiel 37, uh, which we read about in Revelation 20. Uh, all these bones of Israel, all the people in the graves and so on, uh, will rattle together and have the breath of life put back in them, be taught the truth, and be able to have a true chance at salvation. Most Protestants, most religionists think if you didn't uh, get saved, and you die, you're going to hell. No, you're not. You're going to be in the second resurrection and be taught the truth and have your opportunity at salvation. Everybody gets one actual chance, a fair chance. Nobody's left out. Otherwise, God wouldn't be fair. So we're here to represent and to think about and prepare for teaching those people once they are resurrected in Ezekiel 37. Physical human beings, the breath of life put back in them. Uh, that's not immortal or eternal or spiritual or the first resurrection. It's just not. The second resurrection. Or, I mean, yeah, the second resurrection. So, from my standpoint, it's been a wonderful feast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for caring. Thank you for listening and hopefully learning some things and being reminded of things more than anything else. Uh, 
I truly am appreciative of all the effort that's gone in to making it easy for us and good for us <coughs> to fellowship together, to eat together, uh, to come and be together. It takes a lot of time and energy and preparation from people. And uh, I just want to thank you for that. Thank you for offerings you've brought. Uh, they'll help. We have things that we need to fund, like the lawsuit we have still pending against us, and so on and so forth. Taxes on the rest of the land, not the 50 bucks we're turning in, is for the taxes on the land we live on. The rest of it's ours, I think God's, uh, but I have to come up with a way to pay the taxes on the rest of it. And your generous generosity and offerings and so on through the year and at the holy days uh, are very, very much appreciated and needed just to operate, <laughs> if you will. So thank you for all the smiles and the good attitudes and uh, all that we've had. I haven't seen too many bad attitudes except my own. Uh, no, I haven't really had a bad attitude. I've had bad health, partly. <laughs> but uh, trying to get along and enjoy each other and appreciate each other <clears throat> because we are a family of God, a family of people representing God. And it is our duty and responsibility to love each other and care for each other and do for each other. And that's amplified at the feast. So thank you so much for making it possible for us to truly enjoy it. And for those who are staying, God bless. And for those who are traveling, may God see you safely home. Because that's a long trip. And uh, we always need God's protection. So God be with you till we meet again tomorrow.